I did not, and then I'll be very honest with you, I did not conceive at all of the possibility, at all, and many doctors are still in the same position, remember that, right, as I, I was then, that a vaccine could do any significant harm, and certainly not harm to the heart. Um, and then over the course of a few weeks, several bits of data started coming in that made me start to think, hold on, there may be a problem here. The first bit of data was an abstract published in circulation by Stephen Gundry, where he'd actually shown that within just a few weeks of having the mRNA vaccines in his population of patients that he was looking after, there was a massive increase in inflammatory markers. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Fortify podcast, where our goal is to talk about all things that are hopefully fortifying to you and to your local community. Hey, 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 everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in again today. Uh, the clip you just heard was from a talk that Dr. Asim Maholtra gave back on November 14th, titled, Has Big Pharma Hijacked Evidence-Based Medicine? Dr. Maholtra is a well-credentialed and highly influential cardiologist in Britain, and he was a very strong proponent of the COVID vaccine. Early on, he took the vaccine. He also tried to reduce vaccine hesitancy. After reviewing a vast amount of research, Dr. Maholtra now believes that all COVID vaccines should be suspended because they, he believes that they are not completely safe and may be causing unprecedented harms. And so the podcast today is just to play some clips from that so that if you're interested, I know a lot of people are super busy and oh, I just don't have the time for this. So I figured, oh, this is a really good talk. I know people don't have a whole lot of time. I'll play some clips. And then if you're interested in hearing the rest of it, you can click on the link that will be in the, uh, in the podcast notes. So let's just get right to it. I hope you'll tune in, that you would give it considerable attention and just be willing to think, yeah, maybe we do need to consider all these factors and maybe we do need to review what's going on. I, I want to stay again that we still have colleges that are mandating this vaccine. We still have an administration that is requiring, has mandates in some areas. And it really, it really, really does need to stop. Anyway, let's just get to it and we'll start with Eclipse. Till, you know, so I was one of the first people, as you may know, I was one of the first people early on to have two doses of the Pfizer vaccine. I helped out in a vaccine center, and I was essentially given the leftovers, if you like, at the very beginning when the vulnerable, most vulnerable people were being encouraged to have the vaccine. And um, I went on Good Morning Britain because it was in, in February 2021 to try and tackle vaccine hesitancy. And the reason I, I did that, and I, I tried to do it in the most compassionate way that I could. I wasn't pointing fingers at it. I said, listen, there are rational concerns for vaccine hesitancy. But at that point, certainly, I did not, and then I'll be very honest with you, I did not conceive at all of the possibility, at all, and many doctors are still in the same position, remember that, right, as I, I was then, that a vaccine could do any significant harm, and certainly not harm to the heart. Um, and then over the course of a few weeks, several bits of data started coming in that made me start to think, hold on, there may be a problem here. The first bit of data was an abstract published in circulation by Stephen Gundry, where he'd actually shown that within just a few weeks of having the mRNA vaccines in his population of patients that he was looking after, there was a massive increase in inflammatory, in inflammatory markers that I know, as a cardiologist, are significantly correlated with heart attack risk. Okay, and he said that this was, you know, he wrote about this in, in circulation. I thought, oh my God, this is, if this is true, it needs replication, it needs other data, but it sounds like there's a problem here. At the same time, 
a whistleblower, a cardiologist from a very prestigious British institution, contacted me and said there are a group of researchers that have accidentally found, through some research using scanning and imaging procedures, um, inflammation of the coronary arteries with the mRNA vaccine that's there in the vaccinated but not there in unvaccinated. They compared the two. But they then had a meeting and said, guys, we're not going to publish these findings because it may affect our funding from the drug industry. Now, for me, that was unethical, immoral, whatever. And, I, uh, and then, again, within a week or two, I, I also was then alerted to data in Scotland that was showing there was a 25% increase unexplained in heart attacks. So there was more than enough data putting it together. And I went to GB News, and this was in October of 2021. And I said, this needs to be investigated. This needs to be investigated. Reanalysis recently by some of the world's most eminent scientists. When I say eminence, I mean eminence of integrity, people who do not take money from drug industry. Okay? These scientists, Kaplan in Stanford, Peter Doshi, associated with the MMJ, Joseph Freeman, who I've spoken to, the lead author, they were able to get more information from the FDA and Health Canada's websites, and they found something quite extraordinary. This was ultimately published in peer-reviewed journal Vaccine. This is randomized control trial data. They found in the original trials that led to the approval, coercion, mandates of the vaccine, one was more likely to suffer a serious adverse event, disability, hospitalization, life-changing event, than one was to be hospitalized with COVID, when everything is corrected for during the original Wuhan strain. And that rate was about at least one in 800 in the first two months. Likely an underestimate, by the way, because it doesn't take into consideration what happens after a few months. But this is at the beginning. All right, and of course, this is another interesting thing. The World Health Organization at the very beginning actually endorsed a list of potential serious adverse events that could happen because of this vaccine based upon other vaccine data, the technology that was being used, animal studies, and even COVID itself. And look at that list. It's exactly the kind of things we are seeing in the community right now. All I'm saying is, I'm not saying all these problems that people are having are the vaccine, but it needs to be part of the differential diagnosis when doctors are seeing patients with these conditions. At the moment, they are not even accepting many doctors, that even these things exist, or it could be the vaccine. It's completely being ignored. And this isn't right. But before I start that, there's a couple of psychological concepts I want people to try and appreciate, to try and understand why there's so much division and different points of view, and very passionate different points of view around this issue about COVID, the pandemic, and even the COVID vaccines. And the first is one of fear. Fear as a psychological phenomenon, which we all experience in different circumstances, it inhibits our ability to think critically. And it's really important to understand that because that's still an ongoing problem and it's an issue for many people. And we all had, many of us, certainly at the beginning of the pandemic, were gripped by fear that we've never experienced in our lifetime with what was happening. The second, the second concept I want people to understand is one of willful blindness. So this is when people turn a blind eye to the truth in order to feel safe, to avoid conflict, to reduce anxiety, and to protect prestige, or in some cases, precious, fragile egos. But it's important that we start from that understanding so that we can move forward in the right way, so that we disseminate the right information in the right way. And I think we have to do this assertively, but we also have to do it with compassion for people who are not as enlightened as many of us are at the moment on these particular issues. Okay, 
What's going on with medicine? What's wrong with it? So very simple, analytical, and elegant framework, which I like to talk about. Um, one of the most important slides of my talk, I think, so feel free to take a screenshot of it if you haven't seen it already. It's called the Evidence-Based Medicine Triad. So in order to improve patient outcomes, you know, for, for us as patients, we want, um, you know, as doctors, we are there to relieve suffering, treat illness, manage risks. And the concept, which I think is very elegant and quite straightforward, is we use our clinical expertise, our experience, and with time, clinical intuition with experience, the best available evidence, and last but not least, probably the most important is to take into consideration patient values and preferences. So any deviation on those components, we are not going to get the best outcomes for patients, and at worst, we're going to do harm. And I think to understand where we are in terms of medicine, understanding this concept will help us solve these problems as we move forward. So what's wrong with the best available evidence? Well, unfortunately, evidence-based medicine has been hijacked by Big Pharma. It's become an illusion. Doctors are getting information to make clinical decisions on biased and commercially corrupted information. And again, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out if that's happening, you're not going to get the best outcome for patients. So what are these factors that are driving inefficient healthcare? So I talk about this um, pandemic of misinformed doctors and unwittingly harmed and misinformed patients, and it's because of biased funding of research, research that's funded because it's going to be profitable, not because it's beneficial to patients, bias reporting in medical journals, bias patient pamphlets, bias reporting in the media, big issue, we'll talk about that, commercial conflicts of interest, defensive medicine, and last but not least, medical curricula that fail to teach doctors how to comprehend and then communicate health statistics. Now, a man who I describe probably, and I think rightfully so, as a Stephen Hawking of medicine is John Ioannidis, professor of medicine at Stanford. And John Ioannidis is the most cited medical researcher in the world. And a few years ago, he wrote this great paper called How to Survive the Medical Misinformation Mess to try and understand why is there so much medical misinformation out there. And what he says is this. He says, much published research is not reliable, offers no benefit to patients, or is not useful to decision makers. Most healthcare professionals are not aware of this problem. Don't presume your doctors understand or know about this issue. They then also lack the necessary skills to evaluate the reliability of research and then translate it into decision-making for patients and for families. And I can tell you in my career, over the, certainly over the last 10 years, I've, through various work with medical oncologists as a trustee of the King's Fund, speaking to very senior scientists, um, you know, and John, I need this, and, and I agree with him on, from my own experience, he says ignorance of this problem, even at the highest levels of academic and clean, clinical leadership, is profound. Now, we'll talk about the vaccine shortly, but very briefly on this note, I got very heavily involved in campaigning for ending the NHS vaccine mandate. And in that process, one of the people, and I have a, a big network of people uh, in medical leadership positions, was a chair of the BMA. And when uh, Sajid Javid came out and said we're going to, you know, um, uh, mandate the NHS, uh, sorry, mandate the COVID vaccine for NHS staff, I thought there's something really odd going on here. By that stage, I'd already realised there was an issue with the vaccine. I said this can't happen. This is not right. So I did everything I could and campaigned on it. But and I'll, I'll come on to that a little bit later. But the conversation I had over two hours with the chair of the BMA, and he listened very intently, and I walked him through the data. This is well before I published this paper. He said to me, Asim, he said, from all the people I've spoken to in medical leadership positions, 
And you know, he, he brought into the conversation the chief medical officer in this as well. He says, I don't think anybody has critically appraised the data as well as you have. Most of these people are getting their information on the vaccine from the BBC. This is this don't presume knowledge at the very highest levels of clinical leadership. What else does um, John Ioannidis say? Well, he published this paper. It's one of the most cited papers in the history of medicine, uh, published in PLOS One. And he says, in, in, in this paper actually is titled, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. OK, that's, that's not, not great, is it? We could do better. Um, but he says this, the greater the financial and other interests in a, in a scientific field, the less likely the research findings are to be true. Okay, so let's try and understand these structural drivers behind all of this. Well, the first thing that's really important to understand, and I spoke in the European Parliament a few years about this, a few years ago about this, is that drug companies um, and medical device companies have a financial obligation to produce profit for their shareholders. They do not have any legal requirement to give you the best treatment, although most of us would like to, or believe this to be the case. Um, but the real scandals are these, and Peter Wilmshurst, a cardiologist in the Center of Evidence-Based Medicine, points this out in a talk he gives in 2014. And he says the real scandals are these. He says regulators fail to prevent misconduct by industry, and that doctors, institutions, and medical journals who have responsibilities to patients and scientific integrity collude with industry for financial gain. And once I'd acknowledged this properly, I went and spoke in the European Parliament, and I said, because of all of this misinformation coming from pharma that drives our clinical decision-making, honest doctors can no longer practice honest medicine. That is not a good state of affairs to be in. So what can we say about drug companies in terms of, over the years, in terms of their corporate crimes, if you like? Well, Peter Gosher, the co-founder of the Cochrane Collaboration, the prestigious Cochrane Collaboration, He's campaigned and written about this extensively. And he points out a number of things. One of his analyses suggests that the third most common cause of death now globally after heart disease and cancer is prescribed medications. Side effects from, and he said most of these are preventable, right? And, that's, and the reason for that is that through the information that comes from drug companies, essentially the results of clinical trials exaggerate the benefits and the safety of the drugs. Okay, um, And the other thing he talks about is the fact that the, there is a huge history, documented history going back, even in recent years, of corporate crime and fraud. So between 2009 and 2014, uh, most of the top 10 drug companies committed fraud uh, that totaled around $14 billion for hiding data on harms, illegal marketing of drugs. And he points out that actually when all of these uh, companies, big companies, committed these frauds, they paid fines that were minuscule in comparison to the profit that they made. The former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, the highest impact medical journal in the world, Marcy Angel, says, it is no longer possible to trust much of the clinical research that is published or to rely on the judgment of trusted physicians or authoritative medical guidelines. I take no pleasure in this conclusion, which I reached slowly and reluctantly over my two decades as an editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. She's not alone. The Richard Horton, in an editorial in 2015, actually said in a meeting that he had, a Chatham House Rules meeting organized by the Wellcome Trust with some of the top scientists in the world, he said in the editorial what he inferred from that discussion was possibly half of the published literature may simply be untrue. The former editor of the BMJ, um, Richard Smith, again, talks about, in the BMJ a few years ago, about attending a meeting with lots of academics in British institutions. And in that meeting, he asked those people 
um, those academics. He says, how many of you are aware of research mis misconduct or potential fraud taking place in your departments or have been aware of it in your career? And a third of them put their hand up. He said, how many of you reported it? They all put their hand down. So this is a cultural, there's a, and I'll get to the roots of this cultural problem uh, in a while. And then of course, and this isn't just about money, I think one pe what people need to understand in academic science, you know, a lot of people get their prestige and power from publications, so there is a pressure to publish, and the more publications you churn out, it doesn't matter necessarily how good the publications are, the more likely you are to get promoted, and of course that does mean that you're more likely to get research funding from the drug companies. And then we've got problems with mismatch framing in medical journals. So the medical journals will often report the benefits in relative risk, right, the benefit of a drug, but the harm in absolute risks, even though they're exactly the same, which is pretty extraordinary. And it was found that a third of medical journals sampled in The Lancet, the BMJ, and JAMA between 2004 and 2006 used mismatch framing. This is still an ongoing issue. So what ultimately happens is doctors and patients are getting an exaggerated view of the benefit and a minimizing of the harms, when in fact we should be comparing the two exactly in the same way. Right, so it's close to non-existent in terms of the actual benefit for mRNA. Now, what does a Stephen Hawking of medicine think? John Ioannidis, and he published his paper in BMJ Medicine about non-randomized trials, this real-world data, how reliable is it? And basically, he essentially says that um, these, this data, these so-called trials that you've heard, these headlines, 20 million people saved from the vaccine. Remember this one from COVID vaccines? He basically said this may be spurious, fake. Okay, and he explains why in detail why this data is not as reliable. And what he says is, we need the raw data, and this is before I published my paper, he says we need to discuss this in terms of absolute uh, benefits and harms, which is what I did in my paper. Okay, what about the regulators? So, okay, well all of this, aren't the regulators doing their job properly? Unfortunately, the regulators are conflicted. I'm sure they're well-intentioned, but over time, the regulators have had more and more funding from the drug industry. So we know now that 86% of the funding of the MHRA, and the chair of the BMA, when I gave a talk uh, a few months ago, was gobsmacked. He didn't even know that our regulator gets 86% of their funding from the pharmaceutical industry. He was not aware of it, okay? And Donald Light in this BMJ article basically says that the problem is because of this conflicts, um, they're not independent, they are selective, they withhold data. Doctors and patients must appreciate how deeply and extensively drug regulators can't be trusted as long as they're captured by industry funding. In Israel, uh, researchers, I, I spoke to one of them, found there was a 25% increase in heart attacks and cardiac arrest in people aged between 16 and 39 that they said was associated with the vaccine but not associated with COVID. This was published in Nature Scientific Reports. It's peer-reviewed. The data that, you know, Florida um, Surgeon General recently put out that their original analysis from the uh, rollout of the vaccine at the very beginning in 2021 uh, basically found that there was uh, an, a significantly increased risk, again, of uh, cardiac arrests in people aged between 18 and 39. So they've said that we should stop it in under 40-year-olds. So there's no protection from infection now, clearly. Uh, initial protection from the ancestral variant at best was one in 119. No reduction in COVID mortality and all-cause mortality from the randomized control trials. We know, and the highest quality level of data, one in 800 probably in terms of a serious adverse event. Now, let's give some perspective here. We have pulled vaccines in the past for much less. Swine flu vaccine 1976 caused Guillain-Barre syndrome in one in 100,000 people. 
um, rotavirus vaccine in 2006 caused a form of bowel obstruction in kids affecting 1 in 10,000. That was enough to pull the vaccine. We have got the highest level quality of data saying that, we sh that this is 1 in 800 at least. There is no, this is not, it shouldn't in normal circumstances even be debated. This vaccine needs to be suspended completely. Finally, one quick last note. If you are in Indiana and medical freedom is important to you, please, please, please check out Hoosiers for Medical Liberty. The link will be in the show notes. Uh, Hoosiers for Medical Liberty is working tirelessly to keep lawmakers informed and to make sure that they know how important medical freedom is to you and to your family. You want to be able to make the decisions that you feel are appropriate for your family. And because of that, you you really want to know about Hoosiers for Medical Liberty. And in fact, Ashley will be here next week. Uh, we are going to do just a monthly update of everything that's going on with Hoosiers for Medical Liberty and things that may be of interest to you as they relate to medical health freedom. So thanks so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. Be sure to check out the show notes for helpful links discussed in today's episode. Until next time, may you be a fortifier to the world around you.